We turn together in the Word of God to Matthew 12, welcoming those visiting with us as we continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, a series that we have over and over again said is about seeing Christ. We want to see and behold our Savior. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22, hear now the Word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. In the beginning, loved ones, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve lived in communion with God with no sin. But when Adam, the federal head of all humanity, sinned and broke the covenant of works, a war began. In Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, those who are unbelievers, and her offspring, Christians, and ultimately Christ himself. He, that is Jesus, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That war continues today. There are kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, the city of man and the city of God. Our problems are not just natural problems. 
All evil comes as a result of the fallenness of this creation. A fallenness that resulted from Satan's malevolent perversion of all the good that God created. There's something wicked here. It is a war that has lasted from Genesis 3.15 until the return of Christ. A war that is intensified as you read the Gospels with the coming of Christ. From the beginning of Jesus' birth, the conflict is seen. Herod slaughters the boys in Bethlehem. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. The conflict is taking place. And in this passage, once again, Jesus casting out demons. We see it in Matthew 16 later on. Peter takes Jesus aside and says, Lord, you will not suffer and die in this way. And Jesus says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. We see it in Acts 5 when the apostles say to Ananias and Sapphira, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? As one man says, the scope of this war covers the whole earth. We are all involved in this war. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. We are either in Adam or in Christ. At the center of the war is the church. The biblical explanation of conflict, conflict in marriages, conflict among siblings, conflict between parents and children, it's tied to this. Jesus will build his church. Jesus came to redeem and call a people for himself. The forces of hell will not prevail against it. They will not stop what Christ himself says he will do. Why? Because not only is there a war, but we see in this passage, there are promises made in the covenant of grace. Why has Jesus come, beloved? First John tells us to destroy the works of the devil. First, we see the unbelief of the crowds. Here's the context. Remember last week, children? Jesus has healed the man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are plotting to kill him. Jesus withdraws. He shows that he fulfills the servant song of Isaiah 42 as the suffering servant. And now a new scene in redemptive history. There's a man who is blind and mute. He can't see, he can't speak. A demon has crippled him. He has blocked him to... Not, no longer be able to do what God created him to do. God is a personal being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has made us in his image to talk to each other, to converse together, and now this man is not able to do that. Satan has kept him from it. Satan also wants to break off communication and isolate us from one another. Satan wants us not to speak to each other, the old silent treatment. Satan wants us not to speak to God in prayer. Satan is active. Now, it is not the case that all sickness and disease are caused by Satan in this way. But in this case, Jesus says clearly, this is what's happening. And Jesus shows us what we've seen again and again in Matthew. What's that? He's full of compassion. That is his heart for you. Dear Christian, today, compassion. 
Here, Jesus sees this man who is spiritually in bondage to Satan, and Christ loves him and frees him from this bondage. It's a miracle of divine grace, divine power. Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. He speaks and casts the demon out, and the man, Luke tells us, begins to speak. Marvelous grace, abounding love and compassion. And how does the crowd respond? They're knocked out of their senses. They're flabbergasted. They ask a question. Can this man be the son of David? Do you notice they don't say that out right, do they? The Pharisees are there. They don't want, perhaps, to upset these vile Pharisees. And the Pharisees themselves, because everyone knows a miracle just happened, everyone knows something was done here, they're offering now an explanation in their view of what happened. The teachers of the law, the religious leaders. Unbelief always finds a way to slander Christ. The armies of hell are stirred up like a nest of bees that maybe, kids, you see outside by your back garage and you kick it. You don't want to do that. But if you kick it, the bees go crazy. The opponents of Jesus see his popularity rising. And they say, he does miracles by the power of Beelzebul. Literally, right from 2 Kings 1. Baal, the prince. Beelzebub, the lord of the flies. Satan is the lord of the garbage. This reminds us, like we saw last week, Satan is behind so much of what we see that is evil and perverse in the world around us. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. The religious leaders here are saying Jesus is doing black magic. Jesus is in league with Satan. Jesus is a magician who stirs up the powers of hell to do what he wants to do. Jesus is Satan. They'll say that later on. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are evil. And they're calling what is good evil. That is Christ. Luke adds another group who says, if you're really the son of God, show us another sign. They're testing Jesus, much as Satan tests him in the wilderness. The heart is hard. The unbelief is real. Jesus reads their minds. He knows their thoughts. And he responds to them second by speaking of two kingdoms in conflict. Jesus here speaks a proverb. It was quoted once and has been perhaps quoted many different times. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You've heard people say that, right? Abraham Lincoln said it way back in the 1850s when he gave a speech. Comes right out of here. Jesus is saying, my critics are accusing me of casting out demons by Satan's own power. That's absurd. It's illogical. If Jesus is doing Satan's work, which is to to destroy God and destroy humans who are made in the image of God, why would he cast out a demon? Why would he heal this man who is blind and deaf? No kingdom or house or country or business or church or family can survive an eternal internal civil war. You know that. A country can't. A family can't. It cannot be left standing. 
Jesus says, if your statements are true, what about your own people who claim to cast out demons? Verse 27. They will be your judges. Those Jews who carried out exorcisms because you refused to see the power of God at work in me, Jesus says. But if Jesus did this by the Spirit of God, see that phrase? Connecting with what we saw last week. The Spirit of God has come upon Christ, the servant of God. Then the kingdom of God has come. God poured out his servant on his son. The exorcisms Jesus performs by the Spirit tell you this is proof of the inauguration of the kingdom of God among you. Jesus speaks again. Don't you love how he uses language that we can understand, children, with these parable-like utterances? Now he goes on to talk about a strong man. Who is the strong man here, kids? It's Satan. Satan enslaves people in darkness and sin and death. His demons do his work. He's not a mythical figure. He's an adversary. He's the accuser of God's people, the deceiver of the whole world, the tempter, the God of this age, the father of lies. Here he is, a strong man, defending his castle, his palace, with his goods in it. His goods are those who belong to him, who are in tyranny of the devil. Heidelberg Catechism number one, Jesus comes to save us from the tyranny of Satan, Satan is like a strong man, like a warlord, a thug, a godfather of a mafia. Picture someone with all these thugs outside with guns guarding the palace. That's the picture here. Satan is not a man in a funny red suit. We must not ignore him, nor must we become more conscious of Satan than of Jesus. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, beloved. His power is not absolute. He's not equal to God. He's not everywhere present. He's not all-powerful. He's under the sovereign power of God. But he does tyrannize. He wants temptation to look alluring and fulfilling to us. He tries to deceive. Has God really said? That's what he did in the Garden of Eden. God won't judge the wicked. Hell doesn't exist, Satan says. God doesn't care about sin. God doesn't love you. God won't raise you from the dead. God won't forgive that sin. You are outside of the the love of God. He appears as an angel of light. He deceives through false doctrine, through false teaching, through self-righteousness, through pride. He accuses us of sin, but that only works until someone stronger comes along to set the captives free. Who is the stronger man, children? Who is the one stronger than the devil? Jesus. Jesus comes to the strong man's house. But he doesn't first deal with the stuff in the house. He deals with the strong man. He binds the strong man. This is not a civil war. This is an invasion. Christ barges into the palace, so, so to speak, of where Satan is. 
He comes into the world to go to the headquarters of evil. Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is the stronger one who overthrows the devil in his crucifixion and his resurrection, who crushes Satan's head. This is what the Bible is about. From Genesis to Revelation, God defeats Pharaoh in the days of Moses. God causes the false god Dagon to fall down in the days of the Philistines and Samuel. David and Goliath, it all points here. It points to this warrior, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Jesus is not saying that everyone who is not a Christian is demon-possessed. But he is saying that everyone who is apart from Christ is under the dominion of Satan. The God of this world has blinded the heart of the unbelieving from seeing the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. But Jesus comes and rescues sinners from bondage to Satan. He takes the plunder. He owns it. It is his. These are the people that he has died for. Those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He comes. The light of the gospel defeats the kingdom of darkness. By faith in Christ, we are transferred from where? The domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, beloved, the forgiveness of sins. You can find rest in Jesus today. Rest in his finished work for you. Rest in his love and compassion for you. The liberation comes through Christ fulfilling the demands of the law. Christ is sinless. Satan couldn't accuse Jesus of anything. Satan can go on social media and list our sins and accuse us. And he can go on those walls and list them again and again. But he can't do that against Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for you. Jesus was baptized into hell for you. The cross, which is weakness and failure to the world. That is what inaugurates Christ's kingdom. That is what liberates you from the devil. By the cross and resurrection, Satan has been defeated. He has not yet been destroyed. Christ's conquest over Satan is not yet final, but the end result is not in doubt. One man uses this analogy, D-Day and V-E Day. The Allies land June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy. D-Day. The outcome of the war is no longer in doubt. But there are many battles between D-Day and V-E Day, May 8, 1945. Jesus' death and resurrection is like D-Day. He establishes his kingdom on the battlefield. But Satan is still causing much suffering. He's like a dog on a leash. He knows his doom is sure. He rages like a prowling lion. But the outcome is secure. The lamb triumphs at his second coming when Jesus returns. V.E. Day. This war will finally end. But in between, loved ones, we are living in the already and the not yet. You say, well, what does that mean? Some people say the kingdom of God is almost all in the future. Others say it's all right here, 
We bring in a golden age, and then Christ returns. But we live in an overlap of the two ages. The kingdom is present in part, but a future reality that we hope for. We pray for Christ's return. We suffer and sin and struggle and die in this present evil age. But we are citizens of a kingdom that is heavenly right now. You are filled with the Holy Spirit now. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ now. You have hope in the promise of the return of Christ now. You are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. You partake of the Lord's Supper as the Holy Spirit lifts your heart to heaven. You and I spend one-seventh of our lives on earth on the Lord's Day. The Sabbath that points to the eternal Sabbath rest. The inbreaking of these things now makes us long for the return of Jesus then. We are in this millennial age now. Meaning, what Matthew is talking about is what John is also talking about in Revelation 20. Satan is now bound. Revelation 20. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Satan is a spirit, not a literal dragon. He's not literally bound with a chain in a literal pit. These are images that proclaim a reality that Satan has been restrained from deceiving the nations so that the gospel might go forth. Before the cross, Satan was permitted to deceive the Gentile nations in a different way than now. They were kept in spiritual darkness. God's people gathered where? To Israel, to the temple. But with the resurrection of Christ and the great commission to go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations, we see that Satan has been bound now in a way he wasn't before the cross. And we are in this time right now, symbolized in Revelation 20 by the thousand years. Jesus breaks into Satan's territory Christ's heel is bruised, but Satan's head is crushed. The question for us now, third, is the question Jesus raises. To whom do you and I belong? There is no middle ground. C.S. Lewis spoke, you may remember this well, back in the 1940s. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Christ as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the things Jesus said and did what he did would not just be a moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. But let us not say he's just a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
As one person says, if you go into the surrounding area of the Twin Cities, you ask people, what do you think of Jesus? A lot of people would say, I don't think he was mad. I don't think he was the devil. You know what I think? I think he was a great guy. A good moral teacher. But loved ones, that's not an option for us. He is either liar, lunatic, or the Lord. None of us is excluded from this war. We are all in either one army or another. In Adam, blinded by Satan, or by grace through faith, in Christ, the last Adam. There's no neutrality. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There's no independent agents. Jesus says, are you with me or are you against me? Verse 30. Jesus is the dividing line. You can't say, well, I'm going to pull for both the gophers and the badgers. I'm going to wear a gophers jersey in the first half of the football game and I'm going to switch to a badgers jersey in the second half. No, you're going to get booed by both sides. You can't do that. If you're with him, Jesus says, meaning you're in him, you trust him by faith, you're united to him, you're not an Adam anymore. You're being sanctified by the Spirit. You abide in Christ. You have fellowship with the Lord. You are redeemed by his blood. Then he says, you will be involved in his mission. Do you see that? Believer, you are in Christ. You are involved in this mission to spread the gospel, to make disciples, to share the love of Christ with a world that is in darkness. You're involved in gathering the lost sheep, he says. If we're against him, if we're opposed, or even just kind of, I'm going to straddle both sides of the fence, then he says we are contributing to the scattering of the sheep. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure what you believe. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you have honest questions about the gospel and the word of God. If so, we are glad you're here. Come and talk to me. Talk to a Christian that is in your life. Maybe you don't know any Christians in your life. Talk to someone sitting next to you and have them explain to you the gospel. Where is the sphere of this war? Where are we likely to meet opposition and see this warfare? Eric Alexander asked that question. Wherever we are involved in seeing Jesus' church being built, that will attract opposition. When the gospel is preached, Satan and his minions will be at work causing division in that place. Satan will try to hinder people in coming to true faith and repentance in Jesus. He will try to hinder them in spiritual growth. He will hinder them in Christian service. People will be confused about the gospel, have doubts about the gospel, or outright deny the gospel. People will be alienated from each other. The conflict will become war and pride and resentment and avoiding and maligning and slandering. It is evil. One man writes this, when an office bearer does not dwell together in unity and humility with another office bearer, He says, one man, office bearer A, enters the room in his experience. Another man, office bearer B, leaves the room and vice versa. There's a war there. There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's demonic. We read that in James 3. 
Meaning it's not simply a human phenomena. We wage war not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6, but against principalities and powers. It's often a battle for the mind. The devil wants to oppress us in our thinking. Paul speaks of that. You are not given a spirit of timidity, but of love and a power and self-control or a sound mind in the spirit of God. One of the evidences of someone being in Christ is the fruit they bear and the words they speak. See what Jesus says? We talked about this earlier in Matthew 7. Jesus is speaking there to Pharisees. They are a brood of vipers. Humans act according to their nature. If the heart is full of hate, the mouth says hateful things. You must be born again, Jesus says in John 3. Our words reveal our heart. We've been talking about that as a family, going through Proverbs together, praying that Christ, the wisdom and the righteousness, the redemption of God would sanctify our words and our hearts as a family. But the warning comes even more to a real point, and that's the mood of these last few passages when Jesus speaks of the unforgivable sin. Maybe you've wondered, have I committed this sin? Maybe you've distanced yourself from the Lord or from Christians because you think God cannot forgive you or doesn't love you. Maybe you have a sensitive conscience and you're disturbed as you read this verse. Beloved, the unforgivable sin is not divorce. It is not denying Christ. It is not suicide. It is not having an abortion. It is not homosexuality. It is not pornography. It is not a bitter, jealous rage. God will not turn away any who come to Christ in faith and repentance. We don't clean ourselves up to come. Christ came to die for sinners. The Bible says no matter what sin you've committed, confess that sin, flee to Christ. If we say we have no sin, 1 John, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin so dark that it can't be forgiven by Jesus. Except for one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you're concerned or worried that you've committed this sin, you haven't. It's very unlikely anyone here has committed it. Concern about it would be a sign of the Spirit's working. Someone who's committed this is so hardened in it, they would not even think or care about it. What is it? Mark 3.30 gives us the context. The Pharisees were saying Jesus has an unclean spirit. Jesus, this spirit-anointed one, they say was doing the work of the devil. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a hard-hearted, continual rejection of Christ, attributing the work of Jesus, which is empowered by the Spirit, to the work of Satan. It is conscious, clear, consistent. It's a repudiation of Jesus. 
It has eternal consequences. It's unforgivable, not because God is unwilling to forgive sinners, but because God hands that one over to the hardness of their hearts. God's saying, if that's what you want, that is what you get. It's a disposition of the will. It's defined and high-handed. Explaining Jesus' power by saying it's the devil. If someone's a true believer, it's impossible for them to commit this sin. A true believer cannot be taken out of Christ. The warnings like this, and a warning in Hebrews 6, is one of God's means to keep us in Christ and the glorious restoration of those who repent. As we sit under the word, we pray, God, soften my heart and help me to remember that the good news of the gospel is right there in verse 31. We must not forget that. Every sin, every blasphemy of all of God's people will be forgiven. That's what Jesus came to do. It's an encouragement to those who are bruised and weary and broken and heavy laden. Father, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I deserve your judgment. I base my life now and forever on this that all who come to Jesus in faith and repentance, he will never cast out. Jesus is the Savior I need. Jesus is the Savior who loves me. He is stronger than Satan. He delivers blind and mute people in his love. He opens physical eyes so that we can see him. He loosens our lips so that we can tell the truth of the gospel. Even if you have been zealously opposed to Christ, coldly indifferent to Christ, he will not cast you out. It's not how much you feel or desire God that saves you. God saves you through the finished work of Christ alone. Sometimes our lives as Christians are emotional roller coasters, up and down. Our feelings, our moods, our attitudes, our emotions, they change. But like the song says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Frame, meaning my mood, my feeling. My affections change. Some days I'm cold. Some days the Spirit of God is reminding me again and afresh of the love of Christ for me. But your salvation does not depend on your feelings but upon the immutability of God, the never-failing efficacy of Christ's mediatorial work, and the invariable fidelity of the Holy Spirit. That is the triple rock on which your salvation stands, one person writes. Christ's finished work means your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. They were judged in Christ. They can never condemn you again. Why has Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. What does that mean for you? If you're not a Christian today, flee to Christ by faith. He will keep you from all evil. If you're in Christ, we are to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We pray, deliver us from the evil one. Satan cannot tear you out of Christ's hands. You have the full armor of God. The victory has been won in Jesus. He has bound the strong man. You are more than a conqueror, dear Christian, in Christ who loves you. Amen.